0: It's been a passion project. You have to love doing this stuff. It's a lot of work, right? And for us, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing families come together that otherwise wouldn't be through the miracle of science. It's yep. awesome.
1: Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I spoke to Dr. Marjorie Dixon about the LGBTQ plus patient population. Before I get in this interview with Dr. Dixon, I'm going to do my daily shout out. And today it's going to be to Janet Frazier. Since I had a Canadian physician on, I was, I should shout out one of the first Canadians I met in the field, Janet Frazier, who also helped me to get my first speaking slot in the field ever. And I haven't spoken to her in a while and I hope she's doing well and I hope she still listens I know she used to. And so I hope she listens and she hears that. And if you know Jen, give her a bit of a shout out for me. My interview with Dr. Dixon today is about the LGBTQ plus population and why she started her practice, ANOVA Fertility, in Toronto four and a half years ago. Dr. Dixon trained in the United States, she saw one set of standards and then she moved back to Canada in 2006 to practice and felt that she couldn't deliver that standard of care given the uh, social norms, given the just the status quo, given some of the regulatory schema and so she talks about how she ultimately decided to use that as the impetus to start her own venture which is Innova Fertility and for all of those paying attention and, and listening, a lot of folks, when we're starting to consult with them, ask about, how do we get more same-sex male patients? We want more same-sex male patients. I hear this all the time. And we see a concentration where some practice groups are attracting far more same-sex and LGBTQ plus patients than there's, it's, it's beyond a Pareto's principle. And so if you listen to Dr. Dixon's interview, you might pick up on a couple clues of why that is. Please enjoy.
2: Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patients, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones.
1: Dr. Dixon, Marjorie, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you for having me. You're based in Toronto. We've had a few Canadian REIs on the show before, possibly. Most, if not all of whom have also been from Toronto. You're the principal of a practice there called ANOVA, and I believe that was somewhere uh, along the timeline of of five years ago, if I'm if I'm in the right ballpark. Four and a half,
0: that's
1: right. One of the things I like to do on the show is to have founders talk about why they started their practice. That's a decision in and of itself. We have a lot of younger docs that listen and Can you talk to us a little bit about, even before the what of starting the practice, what led you to do it?
0: So um, I trained a little bit, though I'm Canadian, I trained a little bit in Canada and the States. And when I came to the States, it was formal ABOG accredited training and the delivery of care and the, what I felt like in as much as the physician's accountability and the scientific knowledge and the technology that was involved in the care and the approach to care, was, um, it felt like it was, we were held to a higher standard. And then when I came back to Canada to begin my practice, and now this, I don't want to say it out loud because I'm going to age myself, but it was 2004. And it just felt like I was stepping back in time. We were in paper charts. There was no use of antagonists at the time and Um, I remembered that the way that I wanted to carry on practice and I had done a really busy third party practice in the States because it was regulated by the FDA and there was a clear approach and processes and procedures around it. And I felt like I was being handcuffed. Like I couldn't deliver the care that I was trained to do. And then also it was a, a thing of principle because in Canada, there was something called the assisted human reproduction act and it was a bit complex and, and Difficult to navigate and maybe a little nebulous, and physicians were leery to get involved in providing care to the LGBTQI plus of which I was a part. And out of a place of principle, I really felt like I wanted to make this difference, and I wanted us to be the best, and I wanted us to be held to a world class standard. And I didn't find a practice that I could practice in that provided that for patients, and so. I don't know that I ever had the notion of a NOVA right off the get-go, like off the hop, that it was to be the best and to provide care throughout the province and potentially Canada. But it was definitely from a place of, I want to provide everyone with access to care. And I don't want anyone to feel othered in their ability to access and build their family and grow their family. Didn't want people to be seen as different.
1: You mentioned that you felt like uh, you felt handcuffed in in being able to provide the the standard of care that you had been trained to deliver. Can you give some examples?
0: Well, I, I just felt like there were standardized protocols, how how I trained, we referred to the literature a lot and how we um, crafted protocols for patients, our approaches to patients as well. Um, the LGBTQI plus community was seen though different as to be included and it was a little astonishing to me to come back to Canada where some of the um, older generation fertility providers were reluctant to allow me to practice and provide care to gay men and they would say things to me like oh well I reserve the right to not deliver that's my, that's my guy voice I deserve the right to not deliver care if I don't feel comfortable to deliver care and I'm like well that's discriminatory actually and everyone has a right to a family, and I want to be allowed to do this. And so I endeavored to create connections with legal teams, with lawyers who understood the act and what we could and could not do, and and wanted to also create routes for patients to be able to get the care without feeling that they were othered or not welcome.
1: What do you speculate the reason if you do speculate what the reasons are, or maybe you, you feel more strongly, but I, I could speculate one old schoolness being one of it Two, Canadian clinics tend to be even busier than than US clinics in terms of new patients, at least partly because in in most if not every province, I believe the initial consult is paid for so it's not uncommon to see a uh, a clinic with several month wait list. So I could see that being one thing It's like, well, I'm so darn busy anyway. Why worry about one more thing? The other is maybe legislation or, or fourth uh, ancillary legislation mm-hmm. that things like, like gestational carriers and, and donor eggs. So mm-hmm. of that whole hodgepodge and perhaps others, what do you speculate the, or, or perhaps feel more strongly about the reasons for?
0: I think it was just comfort and approach at the time. And people really, the physicians, in fairness, it was some of the um, acts in providing care to communities through gestational surrogacy and egg donation was quite punitive. It was covered in the Penal Code of Canada, right? So if you did any of the prohibited acts in the uh, Sister Human Reproduction Act, it was punishable by 10 years in prison or a $500,000 fine. So, you know, I understand why the clinicians and clinics were leery initially to get involved like there's a solution to every problem and if you find the right legal team and you have um, uh, physicians who understand what you can and cannot do in the provision of care because you were providing care safely to gestational surrogates and egg donations and egg donors and intended parents and the unintended consequence of the nebulosity and the, the fearful environment that physicians lived in um, was that the patients were cr- given barriers to access care. And I don't think it was an intentional thing. It was an unintended consequence, but there were few physicians that were willing to stick their necks out and say, you know what? This is not right. We're trained to provide care to all. And we have to find a way to create mechanisms for our patients to get safe care, right? And and that was what I think was probably the biggest barrier for patients. It was fear. It was an environment that was uncertain and, you know, you needed people to say, OK, let's create a path that is conformed to the regulations, but that protects both the intended parents and the gestational surrogates and the egg donors.
1: From the regulatory standpoint, how much has it changed or not changed in the last decade?
0: OK, interesting that you say that, because uh, I, well, one, there are two things. One has been Look, for for the LGBTQ community has come a long way in 10 years. I know that because I see some of my young staff, nurses, people at all levels of the business who are so open now and who just see it as normal, which it is. However, I grew up in a very heteronormative place, right? So 20 years ago, <laughs> when I started, it was seen as very different, I mean, even when I was having my family through um, donor insemination, through donor sperm actually, I grew my family through a donor. And at the time it was novel-ish, starting to change in the late nineties, beginning of 2000s, I have a 15 year old IVF baby. And then you segue to now where people are openly talking about their experience, their sexual identity or orientation um, it was so different back then that it was important for me to include it in the mission statement of ANOVA that, you know, all are welcome, that it's inclusive in the provision of care, regardless of your sexual or- orientation or gender identity, um, socioeconomic status, geography, uh, be- ethnic background. Like, I wanted access to care for all because it was the right thing to do. And there were so many barriers, either visible or um, biases that existed you segue to now, most clinics have some kind of program for the LGBTQI plus community. Um, but I recognize that some of these places that are very open now were the same places that I wasn't allowed to do this stuff, right? And much as, you know, I may look youngish, I'm older. And so the younger crew were like, hasn't it always been this way? I'm like, actually, no. There has been a tremendous change. And still, though, there's work to be done. Because much as when you look around and we talk about how you're doing awareness week, canada, US, we talk about one in, you know, one in five couples. You know, 15% of the population is infertile. But you know, the LGBTQI plus community is not infertile. They're in obligate needs of eggs and sperm and gestational surrogate. And so though it's come a long way, there's still things that need to change. And we can grow and evolve and learn new things, even in just how we present intake forms and literature and how we present ourselves on our websites and how we speak, which pronouns we use and asking patients and our clients how they prefer to be addressed. Like all of these things are very different from the standard heteronormative place that I came from, that I grew up in. And they make a significant difference to a patient's experience in a clinic. And and we see patients internationally who come from jurisdictions where they're persecuted for their sexual orientation We see patients locally who have been even in local clinics and felt like they weren't accommodated or felt extremely othered in their experience as they passed through from intake to care in the fertility center. And, you know, though we're not perfect, we are very cognizant of it and we are conscious of the need to improve in our interactions with our patients every day.
1: I smiled at your comment about uh, some of the places now that have at least become serving the community. We're not the ones doing that t- 20 years ago, and I smiled because I'm not just talking about the principle of LGBTQI community. I'm I'm talking about more of the principle of when you see society is going a, a different direction, you better know where it's going and where you stand at, where it will be 20 years from now. And I'm not saying that we can, we can predict everything. And I'm not saying that someone should go with, with society and everything, but I'm saying you should know where it goes because you're going to have to, you're going to have to either say, okay, I'm, I'm going along or, or I've got some other reason for it. And I see places all the time that are just playing catch up that are just, Oh, oh, this is cool now, or, oh, we're allowed to do this now? Uh, yeah, we've always been down. <laughs> no, no, you haven't. And- so
0: sometimes I, I, you know, I guess as I get older, I feel more open to talk about it, but mainly because I recognize that I have a voice and Innova has a voice and we have an ability to change the fertility landscape in Canada for our inclusivity and for providing means of access to care and for the provision of the best care and technology in an amalgam of, a universally covered environment and a private pay environment. So, you know, we recognize that what we needed yesterday is not what we need today. Is not what we'll need tomorrow. We evolve and we change and we push ourselves. Complacency makes all of us crazy at Anova, <laughs> driven by a crazy person, but complacency is not us. And society does evolve. And you have to have passion for what you do and passion for your patients, because otherwise, how will you connect with all the people who aren't accessing Care now? There are other people probably who aren't in care that we haven't identified.
1: Society is has evolved. How has the legislation kept up or not kept up in Ontario and Canada?
0: Yes. So there, the Health Canada has just changed regulations um, effective uh, May fourth, 2020, where you know, it is now the process is much clearer. So remember before I said 2003, this is Human reproduction act very nebulous people weren't sure how to navigate it or if they were safe to provide care in it. Now there are clear guidelines actually modeled very closely to the FDA regulations in the US. So it is much more stringent in the approach and processes and checks and balances around the evaluation and medical assessment of egg donors and gestational surrogates. And really, though onerous, the purpose of it is to protect patients um, from potential infectious disease transmission. Because at the end of the day, we're physicians first. And we need to be sure that the care that we're providing is safe. And so having these additional checks and balances can give both the intended parents the peace of mind that the diligence has been done in the assessment of the egg donors and the gestational surrogates and sperm donors that they're involved with, as well as those Uh, who are providing gametes and uteruses to carry these gestations to know that the importance of what is um, their ongoing commitment and then also how that medically we have to ensure that we are being diligent and clear and thorough in the approach that everybody's kept safe.
1: So you see this contrast in the status quo versus the vision of what you see for inclusion that's part of the 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 genesis for ANOVA, then how does it start to come actually into action, into fruition? Like how does you 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 see the need, yeah. but then how does it how does it start to manifest itself?
0: So interesting you should ask that because we did start off by just having all of our patients into the general patient pool and then we were managing our egg donors and gestational circuits. Now we have a dedicated team that does just this because we recognized that in order to get our patients to care and to coordinate with the agencies and the lawyers and the social workers that are involved in the counseling and the physicians and doing the medical assessments, that it required uh, some orchestration so that we can implement the processes in a consistent way and get our patients to care in a consistent and efficient way because You know, some of the rate limiting steps are the availability of gestational surrogates or the availability of egg donors that match your your ethnic background or that you would care to select for growth of your family so. We wanted to create a process that wouldn't impede the moving forward in an efficient way, because this is a bit of a fancy party plan right like you have to make sure that you have a dedicated approach that you have your checks and your balances. And that you do it in a way that's efficacious and as efficient as possible. And that is also an evolution. So now that we have this dedicated team, we meet twice weekly, we discuss our patients, we have obligate checkpoints out with patients. And it's been a passion project. You have to love doing this stuff. It's a lot of work, right? And for us, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing families come together that otherwise wouldn't be through the miracle of science. It's awesome.
1: Okay, so here's the skinny. Just as your fertility group has advantages over other groups, your competitors also possess advantages over your IVF center that you don't have access to, yet. Now you can say their consolidation model won't work or their lab sucks or their doctor's crazy or that low cost model cuts quality or who would ever get their fertility testing done from a food truck, but many of them are onto something. If you're not maximizing your own natural strengths and adapting to what the new patient demographic is demanding, then they start to do more cycles where you are, get better rates from an insurance and vendors, take your patients and even your staff. We work to maximize those competitive advantages because Fertility Bridge is the only creative and business development firm that exclusively subspecializes in the fertility field. We have an entire team of people who help fertility centers attract and retain the right patients and nothing else for a living. So we can help only your competitors and then they have an even bigger advantage or we can help you too. Our initial consulting engagement is the Goal and Competitive Diagnostic. It's only 597 and we equip your partners and leadership with the foundation to leverage your competitive strengths, not mimicking someone else and not let your competitors have an unfair advantage. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the Goal and Competitive Diagnostic. And I will see you and your partners on Zoom. You you have this, dedic- you have a dedicated team and process. And how does that become fluid with the rest of the, the practice? So you are, you're treating patients who are LGBTQI plus, who in yeah. and of themselves are not a monolith. And then you have uh, other segments of the population dealing with infertility. How does... How does it all become one ANOVA?
0: I think the the beauty of ANOVA is that we recognize that if you don't see yourself, then you won't want to be part of something, right? And so I have been blessed with a fabulous team and operators who recognize how to do the, how to get people to care in a way that brings them through what we have as our general population, but that also has special attention to the details and net needs of the community. So when we are presenting ourselves and we're talking about infertility, we make sure that we have gay couples represented, transgender individuals represented in our literature, in our social media, on our website, and all our digital media, on sometimes our print media, because people need to see themselves and feel included. And that's what I think um, the team has done really well, and also they throw me everywhere to talk about how what our approach is and why it's so important for us to carefully consider everyone's experience from start to finish. So it's really having careful considerations from the referral minute all the way through to the assessment, to the provision of care, to the going home pregnant. Everyone is considered, especially through operations, through our growth, through nursing teams, through our embryology teams. Everybody is aware of where someone fits into the puzzle of ANOVA. And there's a process and a specific path for that.
1: How did you build your initial team? (laughs) With care.
0: It started with recognizing that, again, I've said it before, what we needed yesterday was not what we needed today. It's not what we need for the future. It was also recognizing that it's more important to find the right person for the job than to try to make a job fit a person when you recognize what you need to leverage for growth. And so, you know, having a great HR team, having people who are experienced in the industry, having a lot of really loyal core team leads within the business has been really critical to, the culture and to creating ambassadors for ANOVA who are providing the care on the front lines because you know there's culture to all of this, right? What you will experience, what patients experience going into one fertility clinic might not be what they experience going into another, right? And so for us, it was very important to find people who would be part of the executive committee who would be um, ambassadors for the business in both the amalgam, of the vision, but also the business. And and that's tricky. Headhunters, HR, careful interviews, speccing people for also everyone wants to be the best.
1: Did you have a couple of Jerry Maguire half-baked people, the scenes in each of those (laughs) movies? Who's coming with me, man? Did you have uh, a, a couple of those from your network of, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Who's coming with me? Did, Who's coming with me? Did you have any of those folks?
0: Uh, well, yeah, I guess. I don't know. We, we have figured out how to work really hard, but to, to love what we do and to celebrate the the wins and to use the losses, because we don't win all the time, but to learn from what we don't do as well and to really, honestly, diligently and forthrightly strive to improve and, and i have to say there are some people who said like you had me hello right and <laughs> my reference again but um like people can tell if you're genuine people can also tell if you're really dedicated and if you're not just paying lip service and actions really speak louder than words though i have a lot of words and we at anova do speak a lot i have some great communicators all over but and we are constantly innovating and working to improve our processes, to improve our the medicine, to, to continuing medical education for all of the staff that's involved, onboarding training, like all of these things that that we're doing to try to make ourselves the best place for anyone wanting to
1: grow their family. You're you had me at po- Hello point really sticks out to me because to the extent that someone can paint the vision that's what allows people to take a bigger leap and follow you it's very hard to follow someone if the vision isn't clear and if it's not compelling Mm -hmm. and. Uh, otherwise, you're just getting people who are looking for a job. And then maybe you can, you know, maybe you're, you're leveraging something else like personal reputation or, or their possibility of professional development. But I, I think back to our first employees, some of whom are are with us now, all right, my creative manager, my project manager, it's like, why would they have done what they both <laughs> left job, they had jobs, and they left them, right, they, they were happy with and they left. And I was at least able to to articulate some sort of vision. You've just articulated one that's very compelling. That's easy to recognize if that's important to you. It's easy to say, yes, that's something that I want to be a part of. And I do think it's a challenge, especially for a lot of centers that have been around since, you know, let's call it the the mid nineties. But I I wrote a few articles a few years ago about that. I think uh, a lot of practices have inherited the model of the general practice from the mid 20th century. And that just often isn't enough for millennial employees, for Gen Z employees who need something more.
0: Right, a million percent. And, and for us, I mean, like, honestly, people believe in the vision. I think that that's how we've got some really great people. Um, and then there, I recognize how blessed we have been to have people who have left other jobs and been willing to roll up sleeves and really get in there to get to where we need to get. I acknowledge the effort. Maybe sometimes I don't say it out loud enough, but I really feel tremendous gratitude to the great people that surround ANOVA to make us look great and for us to be able to provide the care that we provide in the way that we provide to our patients.
1: How good are you personally at celebrating wins with your team? Not how good is your team or your managers, but you uh, personally, how good are you at celebrating? the wins
0: uh, when that uh, I think I'm a celebrator friend. I love the celebration. I do try to bring the fun and the um, recognition to the forefront. We have a Newsletters and Friday days where we highlight something good, or where someone has said something positive, or um, you know, through even our social media, right? So, so you have to meet people where they live in their community, where they are. And now people communicate and access care and information through the internet. Did that just age me by calling it the internet? Through the internet, and then also you know, social media posts and websites. And and I have crews that take the little the positive things that we have and we post them and we share them and we share them with one another and we celebrate each other in our wins. Um, and then we have moments, a lot of moments of fun. And and that is something that I think is critical. We created dashboards, we're showing people, you know how many cycles we're doing, how many pregnancies we're having. Those are the things that people can hang their hats on. That's real, right? And that I, I think is is so critical to keeping a busy clinic's morale up, and you know, COVID hashtag crazy twenty twenty has provided yet another layer of oh my goodness, this is overwhelming, and we're busy, and we're trying to be safe, and we're you know wrapped ourselves in a body condom, and we're supposed to not be within this much distance, and we can't touch, and we can't like we're providing care as care providers through a computer, right? A lot of the time, and that has even made that the celebrations of what we do well less because we can't see, touch, feel each other that much. We do have Zoom meetings. <laughs> we have Google Meets. We have, um, we've had virtual, you know, not cocktail hour but we have virtual game time, those kinds of things. But it's just not the same. We, we need this vaccine. We need to feel better. We need to be able to see, touch, feel, squeeze each other and, you know, high-five one another when we've done a good job. That, that's a little harder right now. Right?
1: Mm-hmm that that concept of celebrating the wins is something that I've really had to learn and, and work on because my my natural inclination is a, it is like you're only as good as your last at bat. got to get got to move, gotta keep on moving and, and and so I think it's really important for principals to to take that. It's like no, this is important to the team. They worked hard. We landed that account. we we had a really successful campaign that ended up getting people pregnant. I need to communicate that and that's a lesson that, That I I still need to work on. I think every business owner could write a book about the lessons they've learned in starting their business. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ones that stand out to you
0: lessons that I've learned the the idea or ideal of of providing for patients who otherwise may not be welcome or have access to care brings people along with you even through the toughest times because it's the right thing to do. People love to have a mission. People love to have a good reason to wake up every day, right? Like I think about it five years ago on the sixth floor of 25 Shepherd, babies weren't growing in incubators as we sit, live, breathe, do what we do. Now, thousands of babies, right? And, Science is miraculous, like just really taking a step back and recognizing what it is that we do. That has been something that I just move, go all the time. I'm hyperactive, tangential people, crazy. What has helped me is one, recognizing what we do as fabulous and remembering to remind each other that we're doing really cool, crazy stuff every day, because that drives people. And then the other part is focus, 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 focus. Because, you know, CEOs are tangential people. Great ideas all over the place. But not every great idea needs to be chased, right? Right. And the, the ability for focus on what you need for your patients as a medical director and what you need for your business as a CEO, the focus is the biggest discipline that I have learned.
1: I I concur with that. That's why I chose one I chose one category. We just work in fertility. We don't even work with uh, other OBGYNs because yeah. at least this way if my business ADHD fires off in a couple of different directions, at least I'm confined within one framework. You talked about the uh the the physics the physical location in your office how did you choose that and for our listeners you're in north york 25 years ago that was a suburb but now toronto's grown so much it's been amalgamated into the city it's it's within the city of toronto now considered a borough but it's not it's not downtown how did you choose that location how did you choose like how you built it out
0: the choice of the location was strategic partly was because there were no full service fertility centers in that region, so that was one. Number two, I really felt the need to serve my LGBTQI plus community. And I felt outraged that there were jurisdictions in the world where having babies was illegal for gay men. And I'm like, okay, so we gotta be near an airport. So if they wanna come to us for care, they can fly in. (laughs) And so it's off the 401, which makes it 10 minutes from the airport. And then there is a significant segment of the population that doesn't love traveling downtown like traveling downtown gets more and more difficult and it's stressful enough to be on your fertility journey and i just felt like it needed to be in a place where it was easy to get to that it was easy to park around Um, so that was convenience and then the other thing was scientifically uh, it was air quality studies looked at a bunch of different buildings brought in the best experts from actually around the world to vet the location before I selected it. I think probably that might be one of the first times I've ever said that out loud. <laughs> but yeah, so, so much as I knew kind of the general area, it was important for convenience, the airport, be on the subway because we're on the subway system. It was important for parking, for there to be under the building, around the building, easy, easy to do and, and affordable. Um, and it was important for it to be the right place to grow babies. Because we know that not every IVF center is created equal, and some places' ability to grow embryos and make genetically normal blastocysts is less than in other groups. And we know that, but some people don't. And so it was important for, look, when you're coming up and you're going to grow a business and you're going to make a statement that you're going to revolutionize your industry, you better be clear that you're going to create a contrived path to success.
1: The, that point about uh, the difficulty of, of, of commuting in a lot of larger cities, I do think is a challenge. I do hope that a lot of this aspect of, of telemedicine is here to stay. I think of the last CFAS that was in Toronto, I was driving back to Buffalo and it took me an hour to get from Bloor and Bathurst to the Gardener. And for listeners that, that have no idea what that means, it's about a mile or so. It's a mile or far. two. It took me a freaking hour. And, so, yeah. and I do, so I do see that as, as a big issue for access to care in considering, uh, in, in considering locations and hopefully the, the future of telemedicine is being here to say, Marjorie, what do you see as being the future for serving the LGBTQI plus community? What what are the what are the things that we're still moving in that direction that we still need to move further towards?
0: Yeah, I think that um, having more visibility in what we provide as our on our Instagram, Twitter, social media websites, literature, even intake forms in our clinics, images of gay and lesbian couples, single men dads. Transgender individuals growing their families singly or in couples like different ethnicities we have to have representation visual representation, even some of the digital media that we're doing. Educationally because patients aren't necessarily now coming and sitting in front of you for you to explain how things happen so creating some of that um, representative of all of the populations uh, is, I think, where we will be headed much less physicians explaining everything, but having digital media created that can be used and reused and accessed um, to advance care that way. And I think it's so important for people to see themselves as normal in receiving care, as opposed to, do you guys do this, right? And, and I think that that's going to be the, the very specific change in recognizing how digital media and the power of digital media and and being very mindful in the creation of it in as much as who is the subject.
1: Most of our audience is your colleagues, it's fertility doctors, it's some practice owners and, and practice managers and uh, other executives in the field, but it's mostly practice owners and mostly physicians. How would you want to conclude with, to them, uh, about the needs of the LGBTQI plus community in our field, but also maybe access to care at large, however you want to conclude?
0: I so believe that the universe needs us to collaborate, and and I have had a lot of experience doing this, even in providing stimulation protocols in Canada and the U.S. for transgender individuals who are are actually undergoing egg retrievals to provide gametes for their partners through reciprocal IVF. Okay. So people access me all the time, and I'm happy to share. And I think that instead of seeing each other necessarily as competition to unify ourselves so that we can be great in the provision of care universally. That's where I'd see. I would love us to see being able to work together and amplify one another, be multipliers of one another for the better of the community. Take ego out of the equation.
1: Dr. Marjorie Dixon, thank you for taking time to come on Inside Reproductive Health. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.